Today on the My Climate Journey Capital Series, our guest is Sarah Hinkfuss, a partner at Bain Capital Ventures. Bain Capital Ventures is a multi-stage VC firm investing across four core domains, fintech, application software, infrastructure, and commerce tech. Leveraging the unique resources of Bain Capital, they deploy targeted support at every stage of company building. For over 20 years, they've helped launch and commercialize more than 400 companies. And they also recently announced $1.9 billion in new funds. I was excited for this one because Bain Capital Ventures has not historically been a climate-focused investor, but they're increasingly paying attention to and getting active in this area, and Sarah's leading the charge. Before we get started... I'm Cody Sims. I'm Yin Liu. And I'm Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. Okay, Sarah Hinkfuss, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate you having me on. I'm psyched that you agreed to to come on. uh, And I mean, as we were just talking about a little bit, uh, you know, we recently met and uh, and it was very exciting for us to hear that, uh, you know, a big, notable, reputable firm like Abain Capital Ventures is turning more attention to climate tech. Uh, I know you're uh, a bit earlier on the journey than some, but actually, this show isn't just about talking to people that have been doing it through, you know, three bubbles and uh, 15 fun cycles, like actually talking to the big reputable firms who are maybe just starting to head down the path or, or thinking about it is equally as, as valuable. So thanks for uh, being brave and for making the time to educate me and, and to educate our listeners as well. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate it. I think we can play an important role in the ecosystem. And exactly as you said, we're still early in the journey. So very humble around what we know and don't know and excited to use this as many networks to connect with people who have been there before us. Yeah. And I can kind of preempt like you, I can picture like, um, you know, the pitchforks from the peanut gallery, like, what are you doing giving them a platform? Like, I've been at this for, you know, <laughs> and it's like, look, we're we're not we're not trying to misrepresent, you know, Bain Capital Ventures as like the climate hero who's like carried us out. Yeah, but but like you're a big reputable firm with a lot of expertise and uh, and assets. Um, and and if you're thinking about it, like what's holding you back and what can we sort through that can maybe help accelerate the progress for you and a lot of other people who are in similar shoes. And that's kind of like why MCJ exists to help to help undo those knots. So like. I will stand by, uh, you know, have, having people earlier in their journey on the show all day long. Uh, pitchforks be damned. Sounds <laughs> <That was> good. <laughs> so, well, for starters, maybe just talk a little bit about Bain Capital Ventures. I'm sure most people at least have some idea what you do, but it'd be great to, um, uh, to, to hear it straight from the inside. Yeah, absolutely. So Bain Capital is a global investment management firm that's been around for many decades. And we have a number of different strategies across the firm that includes private equity, that's really the flagship, been around for the longest. Also credit strategies, real estate, we have a life sciences fund, we have a double impact fund. 
And then ventures is the uh, venture asset class. And that's been around for 20 years. And so we're investing out of fund 10. We are located between San Francisco and New York. Um, Fund 10 is a $1.9 billion vehicle that invests across the venture lifecycle from pre-seed through pre-IPO companies. And generally speaking, we focus on four different domains. And so those include application software, so vertical and horizontal apps, infrastructure and security, commerce tech, and fintech. And out of all of that, uh, how is it broken down in terms of, uh, you know, are, are, are partners focused on stages or sectors and also uh, you specifically, what, what's your area of focus within the firm? Yeah, totally. So we have, generally speaking, an early stage team, which focuses on seed and series A, and then our growth team, which focuses on series B and beyond opportunities. And I sit out of San Francisco and I focus at the intersection of fintech and application software on the growth side. So series B plus. And talk to me a little bit just to kind of frame the discussion about where Bain Capital Ventures is in the exploration of climate tech, how far down the path you are, and, and also just what led you to even start down the path to begin with. Totally. Yeah. So why don't I talk from the institutional perspective first as BCV in the way that you asked the question? And then there's also the other side, which is also the personal of why it's something that I'm so excited about. <laughs> yeah, like what led you to raise your hand to, uh, yeah, to, to be the person. So that's exactly. another whole discussion yeah. as well. So you yeah, and we, well, I'm glad you you kind of preempted. We like both of those angles. They're, they're both <laughs> equally as important. Yeah, we, I, I could put yeah. on my institutional hat first, though. Um, <laughs> and so on the institutional side, so I, I would first say that what is shared by us with many other funds is the desire that many LPs have to really think about ESG more generally. And so even before it was something that we really put forward to LPs, we have demands really across the institutional invest, uh, investors who care about investing across bank capital to really take consideration of different ESG components. And so, of course, environmental is a big piece of it. And so we were being asked to report on a number of those components across our companies and increasingly saw that across LPs. Yeah. One clarifying question, uh, and, I, and I don't know how much insight you have into this or if you're at liberty to talk about it, but what do you think is driving them to uh, put pressure on you to begin with about that? Yeah, I think there's more awareness than there's ever been before around and some of the same reasons why we're seeing founders come into climate tech as well, which we can talk about. But I think there's an awareness that if you believe that this world is driven by capital, and so if your theory of change requires that you're addressing capital, then the capital allocators starting at the top really need to take a stand in terms of what matters. And so that is the LPs are a part of it, the GPs are a part of it, the companies are a part of it, but we're really seeing people across the capital stack become more aware. Okay, well, sorry to, to cut you off. So you've been seeing that from, uh, you know, from from the capital allocators, uh, and then yeah, and so I think that really yeah. <laughs> wet the appetite, so to speak, and and we have now within Bank Capital more generally a team that's specifically focused on ESG, and they're working across all of our different funds and were a signatory to a number like the UNPRI, for example, as well, Bank Capital is. Um, so then what does that mean for the way that we actually invest? Because that is a different conversation. And we, there was a few key drivers as to why Bank Capital Ventures actually has pivoted to think more explicitly about climate as an area of focus and maybe just running through a few of those. So first of all, I would say that we're seeing an incredible draw of talent. And so amazing founders who have 
backgrounds that we think position them very well to start great companies that'll be generational companies are tending toward climate. And so they're leaving more traditional tech companies and they're saying, I want to build something in this space that is mission aligned and will produce a huge outcome. And so in some ways, we're just following where the best talent is. And that's also true of operators as well. And so especially in this market environment, when you see a lot of people leaving some of the largest tech companies, when they come to our talent team and say that they're looking for a new role, one of the criteria often is working for a climate company because people want that alignment. Um, so th- this first area is just we're following where everyone's going. And that's part of our job as venture investors is to follow where the best talent is. The second thing I'd say are some of these major shifts that we're seeing that are enabling the creation of generational companies. And so starting with just the facts of what's happening on the ground, the climate is changing. The climate is shifting. And I, it doesn't matter if you understand the science or not, <laughs> it's happening And that implies changes that are needed for mitigation and adaptation. And both of those are basically opportunities to create companies to address those those needs. And so on the mitigation side, obviously, you have the Paris Agreement, which many different governments have signed on to, and that has created national and local regulation, which has become a catalyst for tech changes happening in our economies. But also on the adaptation side, just as an example, One area that I think a lot about is climate insurance. And so whether or not companies care about the science behind climate change, the fact that there is an increasing pattern of weather implies risk to their actual property, which has costs that are associated with insurance. And so climate insurance is an example that has been created because of the adaptation that's needed um, around the changing climate that is happening, whether or not you understand that it's happening. And then second, I would say as a part of this is there's new demand as well. And something we'll talk about in my personal journey is that earlier in in what we see in the climate movement, there was this disconnect between choosing mission or choosing your economic or financial uh, best interest. And I think now we're actually seeing a lot more alignment there. And that's been enabled by a lot of cost curves coming down and really the expense of the other alternatives becoming more. And so the opportunity to actually have demand that's catalyzed by this mission, but also by financial self-interest, I think is really important right now as well. And then the third piece are is how the technological cost curves have come down. And so battery costs have come down, solar panel costs have come down. And all of that means that it has laid bare the opportunity then for software to really play a role in organizing the um, atoms that are existing in our world for these climate solutions. And so those three pieces are like why we're seeing generational companies actually come together now. And so all of it, which is to say, our job as venture investors is to follow where the best talent's going and where there are major technological changes that are creating huge companies. And we're seeing that now happen in climate. Now, one question I have is um, when it comes to climate risk, It seems like the further you stretch out time, the um, more acutely that risk affects your own selfish uh, interests. But the more narrowly, uh, then maybe the opposite is true. For example, um, if I am a lender and I'm in the term of my loan is in a period, you know, below which... uh, 
would hit the threshold where like water risk, you know, the where you know where the weather would change enough to put that loan at risk, then strictly for the financial standpoint, I I don't necessarily care about um, climate. And uh, so the the question is, um, I'm assuming these are ten year funds, uh, and in these different sectors, historically, you could just focus on the sector without necessarily looking at like, well, carbon and the atmosphere and systemic risk and 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 stuff like that. How much does time horizon matter when you're determining uh, how to allocate your resources that are not concessionary or for the collective good uh, in, in, in any way as far as their charter? I, I don't think. Yeah. Okay. So I'm gonna <laughs> I, I'm gonna challenge and disagree with the premise of your question, and then I will also answer it. So um, the premise of your question I think assumes that the more time is more risk, like there's a relationship between those, or more time is more cost. And I actually think that is not true. And so if I like, let's say I have a loan that's outstanding, just to use your example, for just a year or even just six months. If there is an event, if there's a major weather event that is severe enough that happens during that period of time, it doesn't matter if it was six months or a day, but if there's a wildfire that totally destroys my property, that's, I'm done. <laughs> like I have no more collateral for my loan. And so I actually think it's the wrong dimension of time to, to think about. And I, instead it's severity. It's like severity and frequency, which is then like, that's what time is considered within. Um, and so I, I actually don't think that's relevant in, in so many of the, the climate conversations that we're having now. But to answer your question, nonetheless, on time frame of fund. So for many climate funds, they're thinking about what is the, what are the largest sources of carbon and how do I address my investments in order to mitigate specifically those sources? Or how do I, have like a rank order, not just of funds invested, but also of carbon mitigated as like one of my trackers for looking at the success of my fund. So tons of, ton of respect for that. But exactly to your point, that's not the focus of our fund. It's not, it's not concessionary. It's also not focused on the dual impact of reducing carbon. So rather we're thinking about what are the largest markets that are addressable in, within the climate tech ecosystem and one of the components of that is the scale of carbon that you can mitigate like through these different channels. But that is not the only one, and it's often not the most important one. Got it. And that kind of answers uh, what I was planning to ask next, which is um, when you're thinking about climate, uh, how much of it is about how do we find solutions within my areas of of focus that fit our criteria that we would have done from an investment standpoint, um, you know, without caring about the problem um, versus factoring in the changing weather and increasing frequency and severity of events and risks uh, associated as you evaluate stuff like supply chain, material costs, um, stuff like that. Like, is it both or? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So the way that we're thinking about it more generally, so I, I was talking about how there are four areas of focus for us. So, or four domains, infrastructure and security, commerce tech, fintech, application software. So if I take each of those, I can apply different lenses to them. So another lens today that's often talked about is generative AI, right? And so AI as a lens can be applied across infrastructure and security, application software, fintech, and commerce tech. 
same is true with climate. And so I can say, what are companies that are building within the climate space that are fintech companies, for example? And so how does how does financial services enable the traction of new climate solutions? So for example, for financing for residential energy transition, or we've already talked about climate insurance. So what are new forms of insurance like parametric or what's new data sources that have to become available in order to enable the current insurance players within the value chain to participate and understand how climate risk impacts their books. And so there are there are ways that climate as a lens is directly relevant to the core places where we've invested. And our approach is that it's incredibly important to have specialists around companies that can help them within the climate ecosystem really understand how their company should take shape and like the science and the the ecosystem around them. But at the same time, there are a lot of lessons that we can bring from having invested in these domains and spaces over decades that are relevant for companies thinking about how do they take that next step and really become generational companies. Um, And so I'm I'm happy to talk through examples of that uh, in conversations I've had with different climate companies. That would be great. Um, But before we do, just a little bit on the personal journey, because I don't want to skip that aspect of it. So um, what led you to to, to the firm and to become a a venture capitalist uh, to begin with? And then within the firm, what led you to raise your hand to lead the charge on the climate exploration for Bain Capital Ventures? Two big, two big questions. Um, so, so taking them in turn on, on how like I got into this all in the first place. So, um, I I never intended to work in, in investing or like as like in finance. I I come from a very politically active, um, public service oriented family in Wisconsin. I grew up like right on the shores of Lake Michigan, which obviously is the largest source of freshwater in the world, and I. Um, so I had a very strong understanding of environmental justice and uh, public service that really was was from my family in the way that I was raised. And I went to Harvard to study uh, the intersection of economics and environmental engineering and really focused on water pricing. And so I understood how special the Great Lakes was within Uh, the world. And when I traveled, I saw how rare that was. And so I thought water was this really interesting resource where it comes from the sky, but it has to be cleaned and distributed. And so it's a public good, but there's a lot of social impacts of it as well. And it was just this like really interesting nexus and like systems level thinking around how you address water. And so I actually spent every summer in in the Middle East working with the World Bank and different national governments on water pricing. I thought I would do that for my life. I thought I'd go on for my uh, econ PhD and then work in the World Bank. And I got pretty disillusioned with the distance between evidence and actual policy. And so for the first time after I graduated, I looked to the private sector and uh, ended up joining an early stage startup in the tech space that was applying the same um, the same. Uh, methodology that I used in my thesis research to business. And so it was all applied experimentation. So it was helping large companies, large consumer-facing firms, retailers, restaurants, hotel companies, insurance companies uh, design experiments to understand the impact of their programs and market. So their new products, their marketing programs, operational changes, whatever. That was exciting because it was leveraging the same work that I was doing. It was also very far away from the environmental work that I'd always done and was very core to, to my belief system. 
Um, after my company, so I was there for six years. It was an amazing ride. I We were acquired by MasterCard. And so that was in 2015. And then during the last year that I was there post-acquisition, really took a step back and did internal reflection on what I love doing, what I was really good at doing, and what I wanted to do going forward. And one organizing principle that I realized in, in like my own theory of change in the world is the role of capital allocators. And again, whether I want it to be true or not, it's the case that people who have access to the capital are often in positions of power in the world that we live in today. And so I thought about how can I get closer to that? And how does my specific set of um, experiences and background, how can that serve the people who are creating change on the ground, which are really the amazing founders that we have the opportunity to support. And so I came out to California. I went went west, <laughs> young lad, and um, went to Stanford for business school. And that was my moment of really testing out the theory of whether or not I'd enjoy investing or if I'd really miss building. And so came to Stanford, had the amazing opportunity to work with Cowboy Ventures. So Aileen Lee, who's an early stage venture capitalist, former Kleiner partner, um, coined the term unicorn. She started All Raise, the largest women's network in venture, an incredible mentor, an incredible investor. And so had the chance to work with her and the team for the first year. Loved investing, but realized I missed some of the, the data and, and, and heft that comes along with later stage investing. And really from my economics and engineering background, I just see the world in that way. And so I ended up having the opportunity to move um, into private equity. So at with a growth fund at KKR for a couple of years um, in order to really learn how to be an investor. And that was a super humbling experience for me because I mean, as you can hear, I am I'm not someone cut from <laughs> the finance cloth. I like no one in my family understands anything about private equity or finance. And I had no investment banking background. Um, so I had a ton to learn and it was an amazing place to do that because it really stretched me intellectually to learn that and then had the chance to come over to Bain Capital three years ago. Um, and I think on this like personal journey of when do you put your hand up and lead and when do you get a chance to like come back to the things that really matter to you? It is sometimes scary politically to like have trade-offs in what we do, especially in large organizations like being capital, but many other finance organizations. And so for me, it was this, it was this twin opportunity of realizing that for myself, having I had my son two years ago. Um, and I just I couldn't like like there's a part of always being able to think about taking a step along a path, knowing that there's an eventual outcome. And so like it's it's um it's the marshmallow test with little kids or no, yeah yeah it's like how many marshmallows can you put in front of a little kid and let them know that they'll have more um, if they wait but if they eat them then they'll only get the one and so <laughs> I think as a little kid I was always very good at waiting and so I understood that the longer the the more that I developed my skills the opportunity I would have to be in a position of leadership to really be able to fulfill the dreams or like theory of change that I had. But at the same time, I think having my son two years ago was this moment of reckoning personally of just realizing that we're not, the climate is not going in the direction that we need to. We all have a role to play. And at some point the time is now and we can always, I could always imagine that I could be more established or more more able, but but I had to do do what I could do. Um, and then at the same time, I think there was a lot of interest among the partners at Bain Capital Ventures to really engage in this space. And there, for all the reasons that I was saying, it rationally and theoretically makes sense. 
but it does take someone to raise their hand and be willing to put in the groundwork really of exactly as we were saying in the beginning of this podcast as well, that we're not of, of the, of the space, like we haven't grown up in it. And so there's a lot of work to be done to build bridges and really establish ourselves as partners that people can trust and want to work with instead of people, instead of partners that people want to like stay away from. And so a lot of, a lot of bridge building, a lot of getting to know people, a lot of frankly reconnecting with old friends (laughs) of mine. And so in many ways, it's felt like a coming home to the community rather than like building a whole new thing. Um, And, and being willing to put in the time as well to bring the intellectual approach and framework that we have for all of the spaces where we invest to the climate space. And so really um, the brass tacks of mapping out where the experiences that we've had are directly relevant so that we're not going in and investing in areas where we don't have the expertise and we are not the best partners, but we're doing it specifically at the intersection where the work that we've done is highly additive to climate founders and we think we can help them actually build the company to be larger and more successful than they could without our participation on the cap table. And so at this point, is it is it a totally informal exploration that you're expected to do just like nights and weekends on your own time? Or uh, how is the firm thinking about uh, this and, and formalizing it? And how are you thinking about it and formalizing it in terms of how you allocate your time professionally? Yeah. So it's a very, it, in general, time allocation is such a, as you know, as you guys have got into the investing space as well, it's a very amorphous and undefined uh, undefined thing. Um, so practically speaking, over the summer, I had the opportunity to bring two individuals in who are really helpful to like really map, map the framework, so to speak, within the climate tech space. Um, so had uh, an intern who was who is a former solar developer himself, who was an incoming GSP student, who is uh, Ukrainian, and so he worked with us for a number of weeks this summer, and then also had a fellow who was jointly working on her own um, climate startup, as well as again like helping with the um, investing side, and so that was really helpful over the summer to really lay the uh, the groundwork, Alex and Dilly, and then there are a team of people internally who are very interested in climate. And so, as I said, I'm a partner on the growth side. RF is one of my partners on the early stage side. He also has his own personal journey journey and interest in climate. He's originally from Pakistan. And so the two of us are co-leading the effort within um, BCV. And then there are a number of associates on the team who are very interested in it. And so we have a number of companies that we're getting to know over time, a number of climate specialist funds that we have standing relationships with and have the opportunity to to chat with around themes or specific companies. And they'll bring us in when their companies are looking to raise and they think we'd be a good fit. Um, And then just uh, practically speaking, there's an internal Slack channel for team climate, as we call it, in the same way that we have one for team fintech or team application software. And is is this a uh, time box um, project in terms of uh, duration or... Is it is it just an ongoing thing and it evolves how it evolves? So it's not time boxed to directly answer your question. And if anything, I would say we're still like like there was an investment this summer that I was describing to get us to really understand the spaces of focus. And I can go through the six areas that we've identified from that. 
And then I think right now we're really building, it's like we're building the foundation still of the house. (laughs) Um, And again, it comes with humility that we have so much to learn and we have um, so much to contribute to the ecosystem before it makes sense for us to really like take a leadership role in the ecosystem. But I would expect it to grow a lot over time. And so I think we're still in the like below the surface and then you're going to see us come out, come out um, toward the back half of this year and going forward. So here's a, here's a question. Are there um, corollaries within the firm historically of new areas that you had not been active in that aspired to that you're looking to as uh, a playbook, if you will, or do you feel like you're um, feeling your way in the dark and, and, uh, and, 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 <laughs> and inventing? Yeah, between those between those two experiences, <laughs> there's definitely one of sister cheese, Jason. Um, so, uh, so, so to respond to that, there there are many examples of other issue areas that have come in and have gone different directions. And so, maybe to put one that I don't think will represent climate, but just to give you a sense of it. So, we started doing crypto investing out of the BCV fund five, ten years ago. Um, and so that included similar to, to climate the way I'm talking about it and included investments that were at the intersection of crypto and the spaces or domains where we were focused. And then we made the decision a few years ago now through working with our LPs that the, the risk that is inherent in crypto was distinct enough from the core venture fund that we wanted LPs to be able to choose, do I want exposure to crypto risk? Do I want exposure to venture risk or do I want both? So we wanted them to be able to choose. In addition to the fact that the skill set that was needed for investors within the generalist venture fund was very different than the skill set in the crypto fund and that the crypto fund felt like they could um, recruit better investors and invest in better founders if they had their own brand and identity versus if they were part of the general BCV fund. And so for that reason, the crypto fund, the BCV crypto launched, I think about a year and a half ago now. And so it's its own separate fund, still very integrated into BCV. And we work together on a lot of things, but that enables for all those reasons, it like being a separate fund makes sense. I would contrast that with like FinTech, which is obviously another space. And so um, Matt Harris, a partner that I work with very closely, um, he's in our New York office. He started at Bank Capital, I think in 95. And then he left and ran his own fund in fintech and was one of the first fintech dedicated venture funds. And then he came back to Bank Capital Ventures to really lead our fintech efforts. And so that's an example where we felt like there was enough overlap between what fintech was and represented and the rest of what BCV was, that it made sense to be part of the same generalist fund versus having fintech as its own like pocket of capital where LPs would choose to participate. Um, and practically speaking as well, so often there are companies that we're looking at, it's like, is it a software company? Is it a payments company? Is it an insurance company, right? Like there, is it a marketplace? Is that commerce? And so all of this like becomes very interrelated. And so it doesn't make sense to separate it. I think that climate is gonna go that second journey where I can call a company, if I wanted to, I could call so many companies climate companies today, right? And and I could actually argue that going forward in the future, every company will be a climate company because they'll have to consider climate as a part of the product that they're producing and the way that they distribute that product. And so it is nonsensical to think that we would be able to separate that from overall what we're doing as a, as a venture fund. 
I think that makes sense. Uh, so given that, what type of expertise do you think that you need as a firm to be able to invest confidently, more, more deeply in climate confidently, given that, as we were just discussing, climate isn't a vertical and it, it doesn't have a set type of, of risk because it depends on what the type of solution is and what type of category? Totally. So climate is a, one word that disguises a lot of complexity. <laughs> like, and, and that's true as in general in life. Um, and I think that's especially true in, the, in this area. And so one of the first sets of questions that we had to ask is, where is our expertise relevant within the climate ecosystem? And where do we not have the expertise to participate and be able to make bets as a venture fund within the climate ecosystem? And so one question is on the type of risk itself. And so we are not taking scientific risk. We are not taking engineering risk. We are taking commercial risk. And so that is, these are technologies that are proven. And the question is, can this team with this approach be the ones to scale and then create a moat and differentiation around what they're building? Second of all, thinking around what's the core IP and so there are a number of climate companies, amazing climate companies that are building a core IP that's hardware, right? And so it's a widget, it is a, a, a system, but what it is is something that exists in the real world. There are many companies that, are, that are, have hardware, but still have software as a part of it, which we'd be interested in, but companies that are primarily hardware and what you're betting on is really the opportunity for them to manufacture that in a more effective way and, and the complexity that goes along with implementing that in the real world. That is something that we're not doing. And then the third piece is on the type of capital. And so, especially in climate, and, and this is also true in biomedical and other markets as well, there are many different, there are roles for many different types of capital. And so specifically, we are venture equity. We're not any other type of capital. And so we're looking for opportunities where that is the best and that's the best capital for that founder to take the next step in their business journey. Hey, everyone. I'm Yin, a partner at MCJ Collective, here to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer -peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have grown to thousands of members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with different backgrounds and points of view. What we all share is a deep curiosity to learn and a bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, several nonprofits have been established, and a bunch of hiring has been done. Many early stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming, like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. Whether you've been in the climate space for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the members tab at the top. Thanks and enjoy the rest of the show. And you, you mentioned that there were uh, six areas that you've identified. Uh, how did you get to the six? What did the pro you know what what has the process looked like so far? What are the six, and where do you go from here? Totally. Um, Keep asking these big kind of multi-pronged <laughs> questions. Sorry, sorry about that. I 
<laughs> I'm like I'm like trying to give you like short short answers, <laughs> but you're not making it easy for me. Um, I know I'm ba- I'm baiting you into doing <laughs> lots of talking. Oh, uh, this is great. This is great. Um, so so maybe taking a step back even before we get there. So more thematically, like what's the role of software, right? So so I just talked about how, especially in climate, I think like like climate is about molecules moving and creating an impact in our world. Like it is fundamentally a physical problem. And so why does software have anything to do with it? And like, why should we even care about the software role that can that can be played if the problem is just a physical problem? And so I, I, like, I like starting here because I think it's a framing around what role more like more generally does software play? And this is true in climate, but true in other areas as well. Um, and so we think about four different areas where that's true. So one, it's around enabling collaboration or really organizing demand. So technology is a way to bring people together and make clear what interests are and then how do you organize that. Number two, software is really helpful for workflow. And so how do you track multiple pieces over time? How do you know what comes next in, in a process? And how do you make sure that process is process has been completed as intended? That's workflow. Number three, it's about calculation and analysis. And so how do I understand what has to happen and how do I get the right answer in order to maybe create a physical change? Like software is, is, is the part of the process that makes me know what I need to do. And then fourth, it's on design. And so what are, what are the ways that I can visualize or imagine before I actually implement it in the physical world um, using software. So those are like the four areas where we think software really matters. So then we we take that premise, which again is not climate specific, but it's relevant in climate. And then we apply it across the domains where we really care about and where we think we have expertise. And so what came out of there then, as I mentioned, are six different areas of focus. Do you have any questions before I go into that? <laughs> no, keep going. Okay. Awesome. I'm actually taking notes, okay. <laughs> so I'm listening intently. Good, good, good. Um, so the six areas of focus. For, for evidence, uh, in case this comes up in a, in a court of law. <laughs> Great. No, just kidding. <laughs> I yeah, I, I told you I have a background. My parents are, um, my family's public servants and lawyers. So I it, I was never supposed to do what I'm doing. I was supposed to go into law school. Um, but uh, so area one, um, supply chain software. And so helping companies today understand what are the different sources of where the precedents for my products are coming from? What are the associated qualities of those sources? So the geography, the resource intensity, um, the labor, like all, there are all, all these different components. And then how does that roll up for me to understand my entire supply chain? This is an interesting space because climate is clearly a driver. And there are other really interesting drivers that we see from working across supply chain. So those include... Um, the cost, the the complexity of what COVID has done, the the weather risks. And so the last few years have shown us that when supply chains are all amok, everything <laughs> really stands still and gets messed up. And so there's a lot of cost associated with understanding that more transparently. And particularly within climate, we're thinking about the opportunity for bottoms up measurement here. And so there are some um, great companies that are thinking about tops down where they're using average scores for the precedents and like products. But we think that the bottoms up piece of this is going to be really important. And that is ultimately 
an interesting network effect as well to activate like from your end suppliers to the next level, to next level, to next level. Number two is reimagining the grid or the grid modernization. And so recognizing, again, not just within climate or not just within this conversation, but more generally, there are generational changes in terms of upgrading our electric grid and upgrading our power grid. And a lot of that infrastructure today in the U.S. is dated. And so that has to be updated regardless. And then there are new pressures on the system today that are brought about by climate. And so that could be the good types of pressures, like people adding solar panels or people having EVs. It could also be the bad types of pressures, like the incidents of wildfires in California, which are interrupting grid service. And so we're thinking about the software, again, that is enabling the maintenance and the upgrading of this grid, but then also reimagining. So how could we think about smaller systems that are both consuming as well as producing power that are enabled by the twin opportunity for individual houses or individual units to have solar panels as well as EVs, for example. Third, we're thinking about the residential energy transition. And so this is everything from solar panel installation to heat pump installation to EV chargers. So really, what are the ways that individuals are waking up to the opportunity both from a mission alignment perspective, as well as from a financial perspective, to participate in the new economy. And there's a lot of um, there's a lot of tailwinds there from the IRA, as well as like other California specific legislation in other states. Fourth, we're thinking about the built environment, and so that is for commercial buildings. So for larger scale buildings. Um, what are what are what's the consumption of resources? So the energy consumption, the water consumption. Um, how is how are my systems like my HVAC systems? How are they organized? And how do I better track that, understand it, and then how do I uh, mitigate or reduce that over time? Again, for mission, but as well as for financial purposes. Fifth, we're looking at new energy infrastructure like vertical SaaS, and so that could be for new um, wind farms, what are the vertical SaaS solutions that are required to actually help those wind farm operators operate more efficiently? And so we think about this as just at like every market has really robust vertical SaaS. And we have invested in vertical SaaS across different markets. And we see that that will have to come now to these these new markets that are growing up in a very rapid way, really accelerated by these tailwinds that we were discussing. And then the sixth and final area is the intersection of fintech and climate tech. And so I already talked about financing as a really important part of that. Insurance is a space that I, in particular, get really excited and think really interesting. Um, payments and payment infrastructure and interoperability. So there are a lot of, like where financial services meets climate, there are a lot of um, problems that have to be solved in order to enable the transition that we're talking about in the other spaces. Uh, that that's awesome, and and what I what I really like about your approach, and again, this is going to drive some of the purists uh, crazy. Is 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 you don't come in and say like, what are the most impactful areas for climate, and then how do we pivot as a firm to you know to do those areas instead of what we do? Uh, you you say no, like uh, here are the areas that matter in climate, and here are the areas that you know where we have superpowers. 
And then what is the area of intersection? And then how can we carve out um, uh, a thesis at the at the areas of, of this intersection such that it can have a real impact on the problem and stay true to who we are and, and what we're good at? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a like venture is an extremely competitive asset class and the best founders have a number of different opportunities and like amazing funds that they can take capital from. And so that is true in climate and that's like true in the venture ecosystem. And so we know that the only way that we are going to invest in the best people is if we're also extremely humble around sticking to our knitting and only picking the spaces where we think we can be differentiated and value-added investors. So here's a, a question that that comes racing to mind as I'm listening to you uh, talk about this, which is that you mentioned that one of the things that was driving you as a firm to get interested in this area was the flood of talent in terms of founders and and operators uh, from people that, and I think to use your words, who were operating very successfully in traditional tech, who are looking to pivot and do something that has a generational impact in 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 this area which is awesome. Uh, I guess my question is, in the same lens that you were talking about the intersection of what's impactful for climate and what you're good at, um, what are the kinds of pivots from general tech to climate that you think are natural and, uh, you know, and, and pull you in and get you more interested? And then w what are the ones that, that give you pause just in terms of whether there is founder market fit? Yeah, so it, I think it all comes down to fund, founder market fit, first of all. And so as we think about what gets us excited to make an investment more generally, and then also during climate, it really starts from a non-obvious, non-consensus insight that the founder has about the future. And where that often comes from is some deep experience, like some, as you talked about it, like founder market fit, like this authentic experience that they've had and seeing a problem play out or like of, of like wondering why <laughs> something that should exist in the world doesn't exist. And they finally get so fed up and they're like, I'm going to build it. And so I don't think there's one way for that moment to happen. Like there's not like one place to stand where the apple should like fall down from the tree and like hit someone in the head. Right. Like I, I actually think there are many different pathway, pathways for that to be true. Um, that said, I think, what is sometimes hard is that someone, it, it's it's both having a deep understanding and rigorous approach, like a very strategic approach, but also being very commercial. And I think that that twin part is the hardest sometimes because, for example, if someone's coming from deep research in academia, they're going to be on the cutting edge of understanding theoretically where markets are moving, right? Or where there's a technological change that they could build a product to take advantage of because it's currently in research, but maybe it'll be commercialized in two years. And so they can like get ahead of that. But that same person who's grown up in research labs and academia may not have the orientation to put something in the market, like an MVP, to put the product out there, to test it, iterate quickly, to fail quickly, to pivot and like figure out how to make something that is commercially viable and will be sold. So, so to answer your question, I think the, the the place that people come from is very varied and that is intentional. And that's part of the magic of like being an entrepreneur. However, I think what is more common um, or, or the piece that's more common is having some 
twin understanding of both commerciality as well as the strategy. And along similar lines, uh, so you can identify a problem and you know wish someone would solve it and get frustrated and go, and go solve it yourself. Um, when it comes to doing something that's impactful for climate, where does mission fit into all of this? Does climate need to be a core driver of the motivation of that founder to tackle that problem, or um, or is it case dependent? So. Last night I was at a happy hour at, um, and it was hosted by a climate company and walking in on the whiteboard, there were all of these quotes around changing the future of the world. And I just like walked in and saw that and just felt inspired (laughs) and smiled. Um, and I was talking to another investor and she was like, yeah, like, like welcome to a mission, like, like a mission aligned company. Like how cool is it? It's, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? Um, and so Back to what I was saying at the beginning, our talent team is seeing an influx of people who want to work for mission-driven companies. And so it's becoming a differentiator in the market to actually attract the best talent as well. And so am I holding as a litmus test to a founder? Are you, do I really believe you're mission aligned? I'm going to like dig deep and like try to put you in a corner and like figure out the reasons why you're telling me something that is not true. Like, no, that, like that's not something that I'm doing. I'm, I am evaluating them on the, the, the other aspects of, do you have this non-obvious, non-consensus insight that we believe will be true? Is it a huge market? Do you have a business model built to scale? Do I believe you can create differentiation or moat? Like those are the things I'm looking at. However, I think that the opportunity to lean in to the mission is actually a key differentiation that climate companies have today. And so it's really silly for founders to not take advantage of that. And I think that if they're not authentic in it, it becomes very obvious very quickly to people. Um, and so so it's not something that I I believe that like I can project and understand. Like I, I don't think I am almighty and know whether or not people are bullshitting me. But I do think it's something that is a key advantage that climate founders have, and I see many really lean into. So, I mean, here here's an example of of where I I see it play out. So, let's say a founder, you know, has a a non obvious insight in terms of enabling more effective um, mineral exploration, uh, and they get down the path and they're doing the mineral exploration, and the mineral exploration is interesting to. Uh, you know, to big oil majors who are increasingly expanding into electrification. Uh, and um, and in the back of their head, they also uh, kind of feel like, and oh, by the way, this could, you know, be great for a lot more than just mineral e- exploration. And there are some, you know, quote unquote climate, uh, and, and I don't mean quote unquote, like they're not climate investors, but I mean, you know, people that, that are, you know, capital that is allocated specifically to address the climate problem that actually try to put like legal guardrails on um, what companies are and aren't able to pursue in terms of markets if they take their um, capital. Uh, what's your, you know, because, because there might be times where, um, it ends up the market that was the, you know, the market focused on the transition doesn't end up being the most lucrative market for that specific company. And there's an actually much more attractive market that might be in an area that, you know, that looks more like fossil fuels, right? And um, how how should uh, non-catalytic capital uh, think about that? Yeah, I, I mean, we haven't addressed that 
directly. And so I, I definitely have to think more about it, um, to be honest with you. I think there's a lot of like case by case basis of having to understand in the specific case that you bring up, like we wouldn't, that's not a type of company that we'd invest in. Um, it's like, so for that particular example, I, I also think what you're talking about is a is a broader existential question that has come up in ESG investing more generally, where you have like public markets investors. And again, this is nothing that we do, but just to paint an analogy, you have public markets investors who are investing in companies that meet the ESG criteria. But some people are saying like, that is not appropriate. That company is not like, like the questions around having oil companies be in these ESG baskets of, of investments. And so it, it's interesting because it, it just taking a theoretical approach here, you can argue that having a larger shareholding of a company that is not doing great today with the opportunity to create shareholder activism and get them to move on some key climate initiatives can actually create more impact than investing in someone that's already doing well today, but the opportunity is like less, like the, the frontier of how much more they can move is relatively less because they're like farther up the curve. And so I think that's like a super interesting theoretical question and like very fraught from a values perspective in, in this conversation today. Um, but my point is to say, I don't think it's just a private market investing thing. I think we're seeing it play out first in the public sphere. And it's something that we personally haven't had to address yet. But to your point, I think we definitely will as we continue on in this journey. Uh huh. And how the the areas that you mentioned? How active have you been uh, to date with your climate uh, hat on? And similarly, what uh, what are some of the barriers that are holding you back from you know from moving as quickly that as as you might aspire to? Two big questions. <laughs> Jason, you just threw it all in. Um, so on so on the first, we've made two climate investments to date. Um, uh, RF invested in Lithos Carbon. Um, and so that's a company that is uh, leveraging basalt as a replacement for fertilizer for farmers and then developing the software on top of that to help farmers understand the carbon sequestration impacts and therefore carbon credit potential of, of that fertilization. And that's an early stage company, really exciting. Um, Mary is the CEO there and a phenomenal leader. And then we've also invested um, in Archive, a company in the circular economy space. And this is so more in the softer space. So helping retailers actually um, sell the used goods to really enable better recycling, but also brand consistency across the used good landscape for their, or the secondary landscape for their goods. And that investment was made by my partner, Scott. And so that's um, an early stage on the, on the softer side. So th- those are the two like investments that we've made. And then across our portfolio, we're doing a lot of work helping all of our companies think about how to better track carbon. And so we have a number of partnerships in the market for carbon um, software solutions and also helping them think about some of the other mitigation or um, strategies on talent as well associated with that so that they can really lean in and like get ahead of the curve there. And then we're very much in market to think about how we can find companies that are well positioned across the themes that I was describing, where we can lead in and make an investment. Um, so as I mentioned, we have a brand new fund or t- two brand new funds of $1.9 billion of capital. We're definitely risk on from an investing perspective. And so 
I'm not racing to make investments before it's appropriate. Um, in most cases, we've gotten to know a company over years before we do make an investment. And so I would say in most cases, we're still in that relationship building stage with some of these companies that I'm most excited about that really go across the themes. And so if I had to answer your question, what's preventing more change, I would say it's just time. And so it is really being able to be in the market long enough and build those relationships so that we are a trusted partner around the table and that the unique ways that we can be supportive are understood and it's not perceived to be a threat to other people who are operating in the ecosystem already. So this next question, I, I don't know that I'm going to be able to uh, articulate it in a way that is uh, succinct uh, because it's, it's an area I'm grappling with, which means I, I can't like maybe you know, put it in a, in a package with a with a bow on it. But um, I'm going to throw out, you know, t- two two phrases. Uh, one is, a, you know, know who you are and, and stay true to it in the sense that it's like when companies lose focus and stray from their core, they get themselves in trouble. Uh, the flip side is evolve or die, right? Um, and, and we are slowly um, by like population standards or, or like, human history standards, right? Um, you know, move, moving, um, you know, from a global economy and way of living that is based on a, a, and requires a stable uh, climate to one where the, the climate is increasingly, but, you know, slowly again by human history standards, um, uh, destabilizing under our, our feet. Um, and I guess this is more of an existential question, but, um, uh, you know, how... How much historically has Bain Capital stuck to its knitting? And then directionally, as things destabilize, is anyone going to actually be able to stick to their knitting? Um, or like, how do you balance those two things? And, and does how you balance them change given what's happening with the, the, the climate? Or is that just too abstract to even care about? So I, I love your question, first of all. I um, And it's something I think about a lot as well, like on a personal level, in addition to a professional level. Um, and the way that it, the way that I approach that is what, what are you staying true to? Or like, what are you um, on your idea of like knowing who you are? And I think like for me personally, I think about it as the values and like theory of change I have in the world. And so the values of how I show up, of what it means to be a good person, like those are those are my my north stars. Those are my guard, my guiding lights. And then I have to recognize that as life changes, there are this is where the evolve or die comes in. Like as the circumstance or context of my life changes, I have to make adjustments in order to continue to pursue those north stars. So I'm a big sailor. I grew up sailing on Lake Michigan and I sail in San Francisco Bay. And so another way to, th- to talk about that is for a sailboat to go forward, when the wind changes, you have to tap, right? Like, so you have to like, you have to turn a lot um, and in order to move the sails and continue to go in the direction that you want to go because you don't control the wind, you don't control the tides. There's a lot that's out of your control, but you can keep going in the direction that you want to as long as you know what that heading is and you have the ability to actually evolve or, or make those changes. Um, and so I, I think that same thing is like very true in every company. If you have your, your mission, your vision, as the context or circumstances change, you may have to ad- adjust your partnership model or your product, or maybe 
your competitors are doing something that your customers are requiring. And so you have to change your roadmap, like your the, the product roadmap or what you're prioritizing. And so I, I do think there's this ever-present balance between knowing where you're going and then being flexible on the path to get there. Um, and from an investing standpoint as well, I think our, so our North Star as professional investors is to return capital to our, to our LPs. And so most of our LPs are, or, or a lot of our LPs, I don't know if it's most, so I, <laughs> I want to be careful on that, but um, pension funds, university endowments, right? Like there are a lot of people on the receiving end of the capital that we're returning to our LPs that is the mission of the work that we do. And so what are what are the ways that we enable that? Like what are what are the processes that we pursue? And this is where, as I was saying, climate wasn't something that before BCV had a focus on, both because the market has changed, but also because the people who could stand up and lead it weren't in the position to do that before. Um, and so I think that's an example of a changing context and the opportunity for us then to contribute into the ecosystem in a way that perhaps players like us before weren't very active. Uh, and it, it's another weird, weird question, but um, does there even need to be a role for like duty and and collective good or, or essentially just market forces, you know, market forces and the Overton window of doom will uh, will, will, will sort this out? I mean, you're now tapping into the existential question that I asked as a like 18 year old, right? So I, again, I, w- I was raised in a household that believed that collective good and like like that social change came about through many people coming together in in the interest of the collective good, and that what was required to make the world a better place was to activate our community. And so I did a bunch of <laughs> a bunch of um, get out the vote and door to door. And I mean, like that was like my my entire upbringing was one of civic engagement. And I in high school got to this like kind of place of disillusionment of realizing the role that economic self-interest plays and that not everyone thought about values in the same way, or like not not everyone was driven by values above and beyond what mattered financially. And so then I turned to economics as like, okay, is this a system that I can leverage in order to help create the context where the collective self-good is what people are choosing? And so in college and like going through all that and getting disillusioned around how it could be together, and I saw them as dis- disparate, what brings me back to this conversation today is that I see for the first time that those twin goals are aligned. They're on one, they're one on top of each other, that the ability to pursue a better future for all of us is also in many cases, the best decision from a financial self-interest um, perspective as well. Um, and so that's not always going to be true. And not everyone's going to like have that particular perspective. For me, it comes from the values that I was raised with, but I know other people are coming out from different ways. But what I like about it now is that I think regardless of the direction that you started or regardless of the place that you started, I think a lot of people are coming to the same place now. Yeah, this this gives me a lot to, to think about because if if I, I mean, how many people work at Bain overall, the entire firm? Uh, many people. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, a lot. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, so it, it, so um, it's like, 
what if uh, you know you took the you know the collective minds of the firm and you did an exercise around how could we mobilize these people and expertise uh, you know in a way that 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 only looks at climate impact, and then you did the same exercise that only looked at financial impact, and then you brought it back back around Bain style to look at the area of intersection, right? I mean, it sounds like that's what you've done, which honestly, when people come to me for advice, that's what I tell them to do is like, you know, look at your own area, like your own sphere of influence and expertise matters. And like, what gives you energy? What gets you up every day? Like tactically, like that, that really um, matters. I I can't help but think that if, if Bain was unshackled from the constraints of where it's historically played, that that the as a firm with that expertise and war chest and talent base that it could you know it could do a, a lot more but but like is it its place to do a lot more back to the you know stay true to your focus versus evolve or die like i don't actually know the answer like i think about that for mcj right like i don't know the answer it's it's, it's something I, I i wrestle with every day so i'm not here to preach and say you know like like you should be doing it this way, you should be doing it that way. I'm very glad that you're showing up and, and trying to do what you can within your sphere of expertise. I, I can't help but think about how to get you and other firms like you, which are so important to like, you know, the gears of the global economy to do uh, more faster or, or set a different way. What about the areas that, you know, that, that desperately need to get built that don't cleanly align with the, you know, mercenary, asset classes of capital that are out there today. Like, you know, some of those are, I feel like are the most important for, for the problem, yet where does the money come from, right? So, and, and it isn't necessarily your problem to solve. Right? No, these but, are all but great. Like, yeah. But just, just to, like, to, to share one example. So um, there are, so one founder that I've spent a lot of time with, um, she's building in the intersection of climate and fintech. And most of the people that she has around the table today are climate investors, which is awesome because they're helping her think about category creation and the conversation around why this is a necessary product and really connections to the ecosystem. And our conversations she's shared are so impactful because I can take the approach of a fintech investor and help her think about how what she's trying to do in her world, what are analogs, to other fintech markets that have come before her that she can then lean on and learn from. And so like cyber insurance is a category that was created based on a deep understanding of data and risk that then was used to catalyze cyber as like a core part of the commercial insurance package that every company has. Or thinking about buy now, pay later as another instantiation of loans that is an embedded transaction and how that relates to her product. And also helping her think about the business model and their revenue, like the revenue model and how that relates to different analogs across fintech. And so I share that because we can't all know everything. We're, we're like, like no one is an expert in everything. And so we all have to have authentic experiences and, and deep expertise. And with time as our most precious, precious resource, there's always a trade-off in terms of what we're learning about and where we're spending it. And I... Uh, this is this conversation with her is just one of dozens of examples I can share with you around how the opportunity that I have and that my team has to really help enrich and enliven the conversations that climate founders are having today around building their company requires 
the experiences that come from more of a horizontal perspective within the markets where they're building and not just on a climate perspective. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a weird example, but I, I mean, as you know, we're, uh, you know, out raising a fund and talking to institutional LPs for the first time. And, uh, you know, we don't just think about mission-aligned capital, but we think about like, what's the capital that could be a great partner to us and help fill in our blind spots and and give us expertise and help package us in a way that speaks the same language as other institutional LPs yeah. and, 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 and stuff like that. And, um, you know, there's certainly a role for mission-aligned capital and, and we love it, but there's also, you know, there's value in having some, you know, just capital that's got the mastery of, of whatever their, their domain is, whether they're climate focused or not. And I, I think that's, that's what I'm hearing from you too, is like just being world-class at FinTech can actually have a big impact on a climate FinTech company because they don't just need access, uh, access to people that care about climate. They need access to people that know how to build big, successful, enduring FinTech companies. Exactly. Well, well said. Yeah. Thank you, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a few um, final questions. One is just as you think about um, what kind of companies you want to hear from, uh, what does that look like to, um, you know, talent? Maybe, you know, maybe there's certain kinds of talent that your companies might want to hear from or that you're looking to hear from as a firm. And then the last is just as you continue on your climate journey individually and as a firm, just who might you want to learn from that, that uh, you know, that might be listening to the show that you might uh, want to show up in your inbox? Amazing. Um, so in terms of the, the, the founders that we want to hear from, um, so I, I laid out the six areas of focus for us, but I would say even more generally, it's people who are really looking for the complementary perspective of generalist investors with core expertise in infrastructure and security, fintech, commerce tech, and vertical SaaS. I would say there's nothing we love more than having conversations with talented, audacious, visionary founders. And so would definitely encourage people to get in touch and um, feel free to reach out to anyone on the team and we'll find the best place uh, to, to direct like based on where areas of expertise are across the team. Um, and as I mentioned, we work across the the growth like capital stack as well. And so I have partners who focus on the earliest stages all the way up through to pre-IPO. And so there's not a right time and there's not a wrong time, <laughs> consequentially as well. And then, so the single thing that I love most about my job is that I get to learn for my job. <laughs> um, and so I most enjoy conversations where we're really getting to the meat of things and um, people are challenging me and I'm challenging them and, and it's non-emotional. Instead, it's like really like deep and rich. And I found that often that comes through shared experiences and relationships. And so my interest would be in having folks include us in some of the more community building events and activities that they're doing um, with the interest of like having this other perspective. I'll see you next week at one of them. <laughs> I, I know exactly. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and so I think, um, and being and being open to different roles that players can play in the landscape. Um, and so like hopefully you hear we come with humility, but also great interest in making making a difference and being a part of the solution. Um, and so looking for looking for folks who are excited to to challenge that and and to bring it in to their theory of change and what they're doing in the world. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really awesome. And again, uh, um, I think it's one of the reasons it's so important to bring on. Uh, 
you know, folks who are in different places on their journeys, because uh, I, I, I mean, t- to your point before about the expertise, I think building those bridges is essential to helping these solutions reach their fullest form, uh, you know, efficiently and and effectively. So, um, you know, whether the purists uh, like it or not, I, I think, uh, you know, getting some new blood into the mix that does come from more of a, you know, mainstream, you know, purely financial background is essential. Like we, we need it. Um, so, uh, you know, and I think this discussion, at least for me, really helps better understand, um, that perspective to then inform, uh, how to be a better partner. So, and I hope, uh, listeners will find the same. I'm confident they will actually. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity to share it, Jason. Um, it's really a privilege to be a part of the community and on the journey. So thank you. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at mcjcollective.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, let us know that via Twitter at mcjpod. For weekly climate op-eds, jobs, community events, and investment announcements from our MCJ Venture Funds, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Thanks, and see you next episode.